My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Do you believe in God? God says you do. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and 20 declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest or shown openly in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Thus the Lord is saying that you do know God exists in your uttermost being, for he has revealed himself to you through his creation. However, it is very possible, in fact the norm, for people to suppress the truths that they should know and understand about God. Why is this important? Because in our next study of the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached, our Lord tells his eleven loyal disciples, You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus was saying this just minutes from when he would be arrested and eventually crucified. The horrific events of Christ's passion were so foreign to the hopes and dreams of our Lord's followers that they would be tempted to despair and doubt that Jesus himself was truly the Son of God. The logic towards hopelessness would be simple enough. Jesus claimed to be both Messiah and God's Son. Messiah was prophesied to come to reign as the eternal King of Israel. Thus, how could Jesus be the Messiah and die before he fulfilled the prophecy to reign as the King of the Jews? Further, as the Son of God, Jesus should have complete dominance over all people and events. So if Jesus really was God's Son, he should be too powerful to be overcome by his enemies. However, one thing we all need to keep constantly before us is a statement the Lord told his people in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thus we will err if we think that God's ways must match our preconceived ideas to work. The bottom line is this, God's power goes beyond all human understanding and his wisdom easily outdistances our most knowledgeable men and women. Further, God thinks and acts from an eternal vantage point well beyond our earthly perspective. What does this mean? It means you cannot accurately judge God's goodness or his plan from your standpoint. Jesus' disciples' faith was about to be severely shaken. For a while there was no way they could see any reason why the Lord would lay down his life without resistance and why God the Father would allow it. Possibly even worse would be the feelings of guilt they experienced because they ran from Christ. The questions that must have raged within them about whether they could have or at least should have tried to stop Jesus' crucifixion could have brought them to despair. At such low points, when the circumstances of life do not line up with the view of a good God, how does one hang on to his or her faith? The Lord certainly gives each of us the right and sacred privilege of choosing whether we want to belong to, serve, or even seek God, but there are consequences to those choices. How does this topic relate to Christ's sermon for today? I hope you'll keep listening and find out. We're going to pick up at John chapter 13 and verse 36. John chapter 13 starting at verse 36. You recall that last week I was, um, if you were uh, watching online, I mentioned how that for many months now the disciples, uh, along with the Lord Jesus, um, had become a team. 
in a very real sense, like a, a fighting unit against, against Satan and his forces. They had... Um, uh, they, they've been together, they've become very close, and I cannot imagine, I don't think any of us can fathom the joy of walking with the Son of God. I just don't think we can begin to understand it. Certainly the disciples had their mishaps um, and their failures, but Jesus had been there to conquer every problem. Think of it. Every time they came up against something, whether it was the, the fact that they couldn't catch any fish and Jesus uh, enables them to fill two boats until they're sinking, coming to shore. They've got so many fish. When 5,000 people show up and then another time when 4,000, and when we're saying 5,000, we're just talking about the men. We're not even talking about the women and children. So there could have been 15,000, 20,000 people and, and another huge group of 4,000 men plus women and children both of those groups needed to be fed at some point, and Jesus provides not only the meal but leftovers as well. When the blind or sick or crippled or even demon-possessed people with impossible uh, cases came up to him, they always found he could help them. Uh, Jesus had, been, had even given his disciples themselves power over demons and diseases so that they could promote the kingdom of God to their Jewish brethren. Even when they failed to help a demon-possessed boy, some of you may remember that case, uh, Jesus came and, and helped them. On the Sea of Galilee, at least twice, they, they were in danger of being um, overwhelmed by a storm, and Jesus delivered them. Uh, clearly, Christ and his disciples were opposed by most of the influential leaders of the nation, but even they could not stop him from preaching and healing and even uh, rocking their religious hypocrisy to its core by cleansing the temple, and he probably did that twice in his ministry. Also keep in mind that Jesus was not merely doing physical miracles. His love and teaching were impacting multitudes. Folks like Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, the Samaritan woman are just examples of what Jesus was accomplishing. And each of these individuals, and who knows how many of them there were, were radically changed. People were being converted from darkness to light, from lives of sin and shame to new children of God who evidenced the signs of genuine conversion by their new lives and their godly, respectful conduct. And walking with Jesus meant walking with the ultimate winner in every way. No man could outreason him. No problem was too big for him. No demon could resist him. He was intense, yet he was never worried. He was busy, yet he was never panicked. He was holy and helpful and humble and friendly and fearless and flawless. He was interested completely in doing the Father's will. He was generally, uh, genuinely interested in, in those that God brought across his path. And he was never intimidated by man. Is, there has never been anyone like him in all of human history, and it's not even close. And early on, the disciples began to be convinced and became more and more convinced as, as they got to know him that Jesus was not a mere man. He was not a great prophet. He was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And if you remember, at a certain uh, moment, Jesus asked his disciples, who are men saying that I am? And you remember they brought up three different individuals. You remember who they were? John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist known for? Fearless preaching, fiery preaching. Who was the other guy? Elijah. Same thing. 
John came in the spirit of Elijah, but also Elijah worked miracles of God. John didn't, by the way. Elijah did. One other guy they mentioned. Jeremiah, I heard it. The weeping prophet. Here is the perfectly balanced personality of a person that has the fire of a John the Baptist and the compassion of a Jeremiah, all wrapped up in one. But then he put the question to them, who do you say that I am? Who spoke up? Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus basically says to Peter at that point, Peter, you didn't figure that out. The Holy Spirit showed that to you. So what is he saying? He's saying you're right. But from that moment on, things begin to get confusing because Jesus begins to teach them that it's not what they were expecting. Messiah was supposed to come and conquer Rome and, and throw off all the oppression and bring in a worldwide kingdom. And Jesus starts talking from that point on about the fact that he's going to die. And that does not fit their view of what the Messiah is supposed to do. So now Jesus has um, been teaching them that for a number of months. But as we are ready to step into uh, John chapter 14, let me just also remind you of a few things. That is, jealousy and division are constantly cropping up over the, uh, among the disciples over this thought, if there's going to be this worldwide kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Also, a very real sense of danger, because Christ has been talking now for some time and warning them of, of the fact that he is going to die. And, and they are understanding, by the way, when they sit down in the upper room, Jesus says, with great desire, I've longed to, to, to have this meal with you before I suffer. They know it's coming, and it's supposed to be coming really quickly now. Christ had also said, just in front of where we're starting in John 13 and verse 36, Christ has said in verse 33 that he was soon to leave them. I cannot imagine that. How, how terrifying, how, how um, the loss that they would be feeling. No longer able to walk with the Son of God himself. Then Christ had given them the new commandment. And you remember what the new commandment was? What was it? Love one another, fellow believers. There's only believers left. Not as you love yourself, as I love you. That's the new standard for the new commandment. And that's where we left off. We're not done really seeing, seeing what's going on in John 14 yet, but I'd like you, if you would please, to pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father, we rejoice in this opportunity. We pray for help. We have much to talk about here and limited time to do it. And so we give ourselves into your hands, asking for your grace and help, asking that you will help us, Lord, to be able to hang on to your word and understand what it says. And apply it, Lord, to our lives. For we all come with different circumstances going on. And really, many of us really do not understand what's going on in other brothers and sisters' lives who are seated right here. And so we pray that you'll give us a sensitivity individually to what you're doing in our own lives. And also uh, what you're doing in the lives of others around us. Lord, help us, we pray. 
And may the Spirit of our Savior be present not only here, but as we walk away from here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you recall, what's also happened is Jesus has identified that Judas is going to be the betrayer. And Judas left. The disciples do not know where he's gone. They thought maybe he was going to get something for Passover. They thought maybe he was going to give something to the poor. But they did not really understand that he was actually leaving to betray the Lord. It was happening that night. Now, um, another thing that has happened is where we're picking up at verse 36. And so notice, if you would, verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? It's almost like, and I get this, have you ever been in a conversation and maybe your, your spouse, I'll, I'll put it on the man right now, your wife has said something and you grabbed onto something about a minute before she finished. You know what I'm saying? So she's still going on, and it's, it's going in, but you're really not hearing it because you're thinking about what she just said that you want to answer. That's how I view it with Peter and the New Commandment. I think the New Commandment on, at this moment goes right over Peter's head. Because what Peter heard in front of the New Commandment was, I'm leaving and you can't follow me. And so as soon as Jesus is done talking about the new commandment, verse 36, Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? I don't like what you said that I can't follow you. And of course, Jesus' answer is that where I am going, you can't follow me right now. Look at verse 36 again. Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now, that was at least a little bit of new information that Peter could grab onto, and that is, okay, you can't follow me now, but you will be able to follow me later. By the way, where's Jesus going that Peter can't follow him? Well, he's going to the cross, but that's not, Peter's not going to follow him to the cross, really. He's going to heaven. He's talking about going to be with the Lord, going to be with his Father. I'm, I, where I'm going, you can't go right now. Now, uh, Peter then... Ask a second question. It's just like, and, and, and I've often looked at Peter as just being kind of proud and trying to stand out to be different. I, I'll tell you this. The man loves the Lord. He loves Jesus. And he doesn't want to go on without him. That's how he feels. And so he's saying in verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? Why? Why can't I? Can't you make an exception, even if it's just for me? Peter's not thinking, by the way, Jesus is going to heaven, but he is thinking this. I'd rather die than be, than be without him. And if it means, as Jesus has been talking about, that he's going to die in a few hours, I want to die with him. Really, that's... Well, notice, that's what he says. In the middle of verse 37, I will lay down my life for thy sake. Lord, if, if you're going to die, then I want to die with you. Now, Jesus says something that must have really shocked and hurt Peter. But it's the truth. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? How do you think Peter envisioned it, envisioned what was coming? 
If, if Jesus is going to die, how do you think he envisioned it? What do you think? Maybe a sword fight, a, a battle. And by the way, Jesus had said, now's the time if you don't have a sword to take it, remember? And they didn't really understand what he meant by that. And they grabbed two swords. Peter will use one of them. Peter seems to be ready to go down swinging. And he does. When, when you get to the garden, you, you watch him. He, what does he do? He pulls out the sword. He's way outnumbered. Okay? And he's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. And he gets a guy's ear. That's as good as, good as he gets it. And, and he'd have been easily chopped down. Except the Lord stopped him and healed the man's ear, if you remember. But Peter's thinking, hey, I'll go down, I'll go down swinging with you. But actually, it's kind of interesting because he used the term, I will lay down my life for your sake. Now, again, I don't think he's thinking of how Jesus is going to die. He's not, Jesus is not going to die in glory. He's not going to die with a bunch of nice music in the background or with heroic, um, you know, uh, uh, exaltation. He is going to die in humiliation. Folks, he is. He's going to look very small on that cross, very weak. He's going to be mocked and laughed at and spit on. He's going to be bloodied to the place where he doesn't look human. And as Jesus looks back at Peter, and he loves Peter, he's basically saying, Peter, do you really think you're willing to lay down your life in that way for me? You're not. Notice what Jesus said next. The cock, verily, verily I say unto thee, and verily, verily is the idea. Actually, it's amen, amen. <laughs> so the idea is, you can take this to the bank, Peter. This is absolutely true. The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice or three times. Peter, the, the, the new day is not going to start before you have three times denied. And a matter of fact, in one of the other Gospels, he says, uh, you'll deny that you even know me three times. So imagine, okay, the disciples have already experienced this, this awful uh, understanding that Jesus is dying, that Jesus is leaving, that Judas is going to betray the Lord. And now they are told that Peter himself, the, really the spokesman for the group, the guy who seems to kind of be the leader, he himself is going to fail the Lord miserably. Would you not be troubled at this point? Would you not be pretty overwhelmed by what's going on? The confusion, the fear of what's coming, the, the, you don't, you, and at the same time you really don't know what's coming. Jesus has talked about it on a number of occasions, but you really don't want to believe it? You know, in times of crisis, we tend to focus on our fears and our uncertainties instead of our certainties connected with God and His character. And I just want you to notice what Jesus says at this moment. Chapter 14, verse 1. Just after He said, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me. You're going to fail me. Then He says... Let not your heart be troubled. It's like, what? So often I've read this verse, and it's such a beautiful passage. I use it almost at every funeral. And yet, I haven't really 
thought deeply about the background of that statement. They are in the middle of the most uh, troubling time that these men may ever face in their entire lives. As the Lord is going to be taken from them and they are all going to fail Him. And the guilt and the loss that they are about to experience, and the Lord speaks in the middle of this, right before it happens now, but in the middle of their grief and, 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 and sorrow and confusion, He says, let not your heart be troubled. How is that even possible? What Jesus does at this point is He reminds them of some certainties. And the first one is right there in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. What's he say next? You believe in God. So let's just quickly rip through what we've just been talking about. We said that this is a time of jealousy and division, of a sense of danger. Judas has been identified as the betrayer. Jesus is leaving. Peter's about to deny. And Jesus steps in at this point and says, You do believe in God. You do. This is certainty. I think he means more than just an intellectual belief. But let me just say that, that um, there are many today that think it's somehow cool or intelligent to not believe in God. And I've used this before, but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry for those of you that have been here for many years, but many of you have not. And so I want to just take you through why I believe that, that to say you don't believe in God is such foolishness. And let me, let me just start out by giving you an analogy of what I'll call the ocean of truth. What I mean by the ocean of truth is, imagine that, I'm, and I'm only going to deal with the physical universe. I'm not even going to get into the spiritual realm. Uh, I'm just going to talk for a few moments about the physical universe, what we can see, feel, touch, experience. If we're taking of all that is knowable, about the physical universe alone, if that body of knowledge that you could learn about the physical universe would be compared to an ocean, I want to ask you this question. So there's the physical universe. How much do you think as human beings have we learned about merely the only, the physical realm in that ocean of knowledge? Well, let me just do a little tour. This is what I knew when I was a kid. Not as good pictures, by the way. We had not, when I was young, um, going to kindergarten like 1968 maybe, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Uh, you know, we knew that we had the planets. By the way, how many of you grew up thinking Pluto was a planet? All right, all right. Okay, and now how many are told now it's not a planet? Right, right, okay. So, and I don't know. I don't know how you degrade this thing from a planet to not a planet. I don't, I don't understand that. But be that as it may, we'll let, let Amy answer that after. Um, but we, we had the planets, and we, had, we didn't have nice, that was those nice pictures. We knew they were out there. We had telescopes that could see the planets. But um, it was not until, I'm thinking, 77? roughly when we got our first satellite to fly by Jupiter and start taking some pictures it was around then that we learned that that great red spot is actually a huge uh, what is it, a cyclone don't know if you realize that 
back in the 90s, we got the Hubble telescope up. Those of you that remember that, I remember when they were wanting, when they were raising funds for it. If you want to see a lens that would that was supposed to be in the Hubble telescope in Corning, New York, where they made the lens for the Hubble telescope, you can you can go through town there, and they had one that got up and was cracked. You've seen it, Sandy? So have I. It's about what this thick at least, and um, I I don't know how big around it is, but it's on display there in the town. Um, and that what they claimed was they're going to see to the end of the universe. Well, when they got up there, here's some of the pictures that we got from that. That's a beautiful galaxy. This is called the Tarantula Nebula right there. Now, let me just say this. You see every dot of light that you can see there. There are entire solar system that, you know, we would study as, as kids. Our entire solar system would not be humanly visible on that screen in that picture. To give you an idea of size. Okay? Now... Let me show you another picture here. By the way, and I'll put that up for you. Um, here's, here's the Hubble telescope itself. And um, then they, they turned it, and they, this is called the Hubble Deep Field. Um, every dot of light you see on that screen is not a star, it's a galaxy with millions and even billions of stars. Like in our galaxy, I think we have, well, how do they know for certain? 300 billion stars, I think, in the Milky Way. Um, certainly can't we say the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, I'll give you another picture of the Hubble Deep Field. Isn't that beautiful? And again, keep in mind, this is, this is this, the telescope looking out as far as they can see and as far as they can see, every dot of light out there is, again, a galaxy. Now, let me just show you how much they're looking at. <clears throat> it's that little, see that red X? I, I don't know if you can see it well on the screen there. But that red X, is that's, that's the view that you're seeing there. Literally, guys, it's like taking um, your, you know, you know, get those little pen lights out in the forest and going like that and recording everything you see. So if we go back to the ocean of truth, how much does mankind know about the physical realm, just the physical realm? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Hawkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. A drop in the ocean of truth. Well, let's talk then about that drop for a moment. Because what man has been able to learn is fairly significant. Uh, we've learned, and these are all compared, I, I'm only dealing with things that would be helpful in the study of science. Because we're told that science is the thing that has disproven God. We just gave you a few things, a few subjects that you could learn in science. One would be logic, which uh, we seem to be a little bit short on when we think that their science has disproved God. Chemistry, how about biology, how about geology, how about electric uh, engineering, electrical engineering? These will all be important if you want to have a rocket to go out there, all, all kinds of uh, applications for that. Um, we would need to have a sense of history. Um, there is um, historical science, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an important realm. Mathematics, obviously, huge in science. Uh, metrology or measurement, 
Physics. Now, when you think about physics, I'm going to pop all those subjects right there are related to physics. Okay? Now, there's quite a bit of learning just there that mankind, and I'm just throwing up a few of the subjects uh, that we uh, use for science, uh, but let me add on a few things. Uh, how about we'll add on some journals that are being produced um, on a daily basis, uh, previous facts that... <clears throat> Uh, brilliant people who have gone before us and have uh, many of them uh, passed on, Einstein, um, Aristotle, others that, that, that uh, contributed. Um, advancements that are happening now that um, daily, <clears throat> we think of the, um, uh, the coronavirus and all that we're trying to discover with that. Um, I got a nephew that is actually working um, in that realm um, and uh, just, just got his Ph.D. So, of all the things that man has learned, how much do you know? Well, let's do a different analogy. Let's make it a bay instead of an ocean. If that bay is all that man has learned, how much have you learned of that bay? I'm sorry, I'm going to probably give you a drop of water. So here's what the evolution, here's what the atheist does. Back to the ocean of truth, the atheist is actually has a molecule of knowledge in the ocean of truth. And what he is saying is, I find no room for God out there. Which is why God only addressed atheism twice in the scriptures that I know of. And basically, here's what he says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You're not more logical. You're not more intelligent. You are looking at things you have no clue how little you know. To be able to, and, and saying with any kind of, of authority, there is no room for God beyond my level of knowledge. How foolish! The truth is, God says, you don't do know I'm there. You're not merely an unbeliever. You're angry. That's why you're denying me. Why do I say that? Keep your finger here, but go with me two books toward the back. Romans chapter 1. By the way, we could add a bunch of other atheists in there too. We could add a, a number of other uh, drops of water in our ocean of truth that's not going to impress God. If every one of us decided we were all going to believe that God does not exist, all seven billion people plus on our planet, um, all of us drips together, don't impress God, and don't begin to understand the ocean of truth. To say that anything is impossible or or ridiculous or uh, very unlikely with our limited knowledge is not logical. It's not scientific. It is, it is theological. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold means they suppress the truth. So what God is saying is he is angry with mankind because mankind is in rebellion against him and holding the truth down. 
will not listen. Not an issue of reason. It's not an issue of intelligence. It's, a, it's an issue of rebellion. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. God says, you know I'm there. I've shown it to you. How did you show it to us, Lord? Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Folks, here's what he's saying. You can look at my creation, and my creation screams out the fact that, that I'm there. And it does. None of us, none of us would walk through the woods and see Tim loves Judy scraped into a tree and think, wow, look at what the wind and erosion did there. None of us would. And we know instinctively there, there, there's, even if we didn't understand the English language, even if, I, if, even if I'm uh, from a different language, I look at that and I'm saying there's a high degree of design. I just don't think that in all probability, that, that seems to show intelligence. Folks, the, the creation of this world screams intelligence. It doesn't just give a little voice, it screams it. One of the things that scientists have, dis- have been working on <clears throat> is the study, believe it or not, of the flagella of a bacterium which is the little tail on a bacterium that makes it go. They have discovered, as they looked at this, that the design of the tail of a bacterium is exactly the same as the design of an outboard motorboat motorboat, uh, uh, little engine. The same thing, the propeller. The only problem is it's, um, it's infinitely better than anything we've designed. Those of you that like mechanics and that type of thing, it can spin 100,000 RPMs, okay? Stop within a quarter of a turn and reverse at 100,000 RPMs. Forty different parts all have to be assembled in a particular order, all happening in what we call a simple-celled organism. Tell me that happened by accident. Jesus says, you believe in God. Verse 21, I'm in Romans 1 still. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. That's the problem. Is that when we knew that uh, as children, we, we grew up knowing, knowing he's there. We didn't want to glorify him as God. We don't want him ruling over our lives. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's exactly what happened. We're too smart to believe in God. We've, we've figured things out. We've got, it all, we've got it all under wraps. We know why these things happen. No, you don't. No, you don't. We've got a few pictures of the physical universe. Let's not be more impressed with ourselves than we ought to be. Jesus said you can hang on to this when your heart is troubled. You believe in God. But let me just say this. It's not merely a belief that God exists, but it is a personal relationship that these men had with God. These are all believers that he's talking to. And so he's not merely saying, okay, you know God is out there, because everybody knows God is out there. What he's saying is this. You have a personal relationship with God, and you can hang on to that when your heart is troubled. 
when, when, when you don't understand what's going to happen here, you can hang on to the reality that, that you have a relationship with God. And not only that, he says you believe in God back in John 14. What does he say at the end of verse 1? Believe also in me. From the beginning, Jesus has been making statements or others have been making statements about him. And the Gospel of John records many of them saying that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. This is a certainty. Now the disciples have been a little bit shaky on this. And the reason why is because it's not happening like they expected. They thought Messiah, when he comes, he's going to rule and he's going to take control over everything. They don't expect the death on the cross at all. So they can't put it together in their minds how it fits. But what Jesus is saying is, when you don't understand, when you can't line everything up according to what you're thinking God should do, when it doesn't seem to work, believe in me. You know that God exists. If you've got a personal relationship with God through Christ, you know that. Then you need to also believe in me. Hang on to this certainty. I, in fact, am the Son of God no matter what you see happen in the next 24 hours. And they were going to see his death. No matter what happens, trust me on this. Believe in me. This is not an accident. I have a plan. As God's Son, Jesus is telling his disciples, there are many dwelling places in heaven. So you notice where he's pointing them next. Here's another certainty, and that is heaven. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. There is a heaven. There are many places up there for people to dwell. He says something else. He tells his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving you. Yes, I'm leaving you. You can't follow me. Why? Because I'm going to my father's house. Now, by the way, they don't all understand it. I don't know how many of them get it and how many of them don't. But, but he's telling them, he, look, here's a certainty. You, you believe in God. Okay, now believe in me. You, you've had this faith, but you've got to hang on to it. And here's what I am telling you I am going to do. I, my father's house has many mansions. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. There's two ways that can happen for each one of us who know Christ as Savior. It either happens through death, and that's what happened with every one of these disciples they didn't live to Jesus' return, but they lived and when they, uh, until uh, their, their dying day, Christ came for them. I will come again. Some of us may live to the day of his return. But he comes for all of those who belong to him on this planet. I will come again and receive you unto myself. You think what he said back in verse 33, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But then he tells Peter, you can follow me later. I'm going to come, I'm going to come back for you. you say, well, boy, I, I don't know. have any of you gone through this? I went through about two different bouts of, honestly, just for whatever reason, just seemed like a spirit of fear came out of me over these last few weeks. About two days at a time. 
I could, I could, almost, I could pick them out. It just seemed like the spirit of fear came on me. Some of you may have experienced something like that. You've got to hang on to the reality of who God is, of where we're going. You know, if, if, if the Lord does allow some of us to uh, be taken by this virus or in any other way, could be, could be, you, got, you could have something going on in your body physically. And Here's the reality. You, you need to make sure that you know Christ as your Savior. And if you know him as your Savior, then you have the, you have the, the blessing of saying, look, I know where I'm going. And where I'm going is a whole lot better than here. I'm going to my Father's house. I'm going to heaven. He tells him next that they know where he is going. Whether I go, you know, verse 4, and the way you know. He's saying, you know how to get there. Have you ever asked for directions from somebody and they said something like this? You go down here, do this turn, and they give you about four or five things. Oh, it's real simple. You know, go down to the red light, turn left. Go down and then to the three streets down and stop sign, turn right. And then uh, the place is going to be on your, uh, well, no, you got to turn on And then they start giving you another direction. And, and then when you go down there, and then they say this, and you can't miss it. I always love to hear that. Because I say in my heart, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> oh, yes, I can. <laughs> Thomas feels that way. I can identify with Thomas. Jesus is telling us next he's the way to heaven. Verse 5, you can see it. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. I don't know where you're going. He hasn't figured it out. He didn't understand Jesus was talking about heaven. So then he says, if I don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? <laughs> if I don't know where you're going, I can't even plug it into my GPS. How am I going to find you? Jesus' answer is interesting. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, what did he not answer? He didn't answer where he's going. <laughs> the reality is this. When you know Jesus, you know the way to heaven. Someone says, well, where's heaven at? I have no idea. I don't even care. When I was a kid, we used to go to Nova Scotia quite often. My uncle lived up there. My dad would take his vacation and go up and, and be involved in revival meetings for two weeks. That's what we did for our vacation. And um, if you said to me, and I'm six, seven years old, how do you get to Nova Scotia, Canada? I didn't know and I didn't care. All I knew was this. When mom and dad called me, and even when they called me, even if I didn't want to go, <clears throat> which I always did, I like traveling, we'd pile in the back of our car. Now, back then, they didn't have car seats. I'm sorry, don't want to offend you here, but we'd lay down sideways in our station wagon, doop, 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 all five of us like that, and they'd take us out um, either probably, probably um, in the evening, and we would just lay and go to sleep, and then in the morning, we got to eat out of those small cereal boxes. You know what I'm talking about? Where you cut them open. I, we loved that. I thought that was great. And then we'd be, in the wee hours of the morning, we'd make it up to Bar Harbor, Maine. And if you had gone up there. 
and we take the blue nose. It was a it was a um, a ferry that was large. It was like a football field large, and you drive your car on that, and that would take you across the Bay of Fundy, about a seven-hour trip, and then we'd be in Canada. Now I didn't know how to get to the blue nose. I didn't know how to drive. I couldn't drive the car. Here's what I did. I had a personal relationship with my mom and my dad. And I know my dad knew how to get there. That's all I had to know. And when it comes to heaven, you don't have to know where heaven's at. You just have to know the Lord. That's all you have to know. And Jesus said this, I am the way. It's not one of many. I am the way. I am the truth. Whatever he says is true, which means this. You can trust me, fellas. I am the Son of God here. It's going to happen. Things are going to happen to me that you don't think could, should and, or, or ever could happen. They're about to happen to me. It's not going to make sense to you. It's not going to add up in your line of thinking. But that doesn't change the reality that I am the Son of God. And can I say that same thing happens to us today. You can't line everything up. You can't. You can't figure everything out as to why God does this and why God does not do that. You can't do it. you got to grab on to what you know to be true. Yes, I do believe in God. I have a personal relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that, he's, that there is a heaven and I believe that Jesus is going to take me there. I am the way. I am the truth. What He says is true. I am the life. He's the, he's, his salvation is not being a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic or anything like that. It boils down to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Do you know him personally, not just of him? Have you come to a place where you have accepted him into your life as your Lord and your Savior to run your life? Has that happened to you? Where you've repented of your sin and turned to him? That's what salvation is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in case we missed it, he says at the end of the verse, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you think, I have Jesus Christ, but he's just one of the many options. Can I just be as respectful as I can? But say it to you this way, you don't have him yet. Because you really don't understand salvation if you think you can get salvation without Jesus Christ. Why is that true? Why is Jesus the only way? This is your chance to. Is that a hand up, Amy? No, you're... I'm sorry, so, so, saw somebody's hand. It is why he came. He was the only one that could die on our cro the cross for our sins because he was the only one that was sinless. That's exactly right. And folks, you don't get to heaven without all of your sins being forgiven. It's not a 50-50. It's not a, you know, if I get 60-40, I'm okay. Every one of your sins has to be paid for. Every one. And there's only one person that could pay for your sins. And there's only one sacrifice that could pay for your sins, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And so until you've accepted him, understanding that, that I can't get to heaven on being good. I can't get to heaven on being religious. I can't be in the, get to heaven by joining the church. I've got to put my faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sins. When you get that, you understand salvation. And when you invite him into your life, that's when you belong to him. 
Let me just remind you then of the certainties that Jesus talked about. First of all, faith in, in God himself. And then hanging on to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. That God has, that heaven is real. And that Jesus is the way to heaven. So I don't know what fears you may be battling today. I don't, I don't know what confusion you may be battling. But I will tell you this. Focus on what you know, not what you don't know. Focus on the, 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 the peace that God can give you, not on the confusion that you're still feeling. doesn't mean that you don't ask God for answers, but you don't, you don't sit there. Focus on the realities that you know. I'll just share one thing in closing. You can look if you want to. Um, it's in Isaiah chapter 26. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 26 and if, if, if you get a correspondence from me, I try in just about every case to close it with um, these two verses. So if you get something from me. Now, sometimes my wife does a lot of the birthday cards and etc. So, uh, but if you get something specifically from me, I'm almost always going to put this on the end of the verse. The, and, and the reason why is when I was a kid, um, we moved for the first time. I was uh, just about eight years old. I was still seven years old. We were moving from upstate New York. My dad was taking a new church in the Binghamton area. And I was very afraid of the whole thing. I'd never moved before, uh, new school, um, leaving my old friends, all of that. And um, to, I was afraid to the point that it was bothering me physically. And, and my mother shared with me this verse of Scripture, and God just wrote it on my heart. I added verse 4, I think, actually, probably after I came here. But both of these really have been a help to me um, when I'm tempted to worry. Notice what it says. Thou, speaking of God, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Now, the idea is fixed, okay, on the Lord. God will give you perfect peace when you fix your mind on the Lord because he trusts in thee. You trust in God. Um, verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Uh, this, this means a ton to me. When, when, when we're afraid, look at God. Put your focus on the Lord, not on yourself. Put it on God. Don't focus on the fear. doesn't mean you deny the fear, but get your eyes off that and flip it over on the Lord. And where it really, um, as an adult, where this whole thing really hit me again was when Molly got the, the bladder cancer, those of you that remember that. And, and I, I had, at that point, instead of, I could run the whole scenario, which you can do all night. You know, what is this, what is that? Instead of playing that game, I, I learned to just flip my mind to the Lord and to think about Him and to literally take my burden and just throw it on the Lord and say, I'm going to trust you with it. And I'll tell you, that gave me great peace. It really did. And I just encourage you, if you're afraid, if you're confused, get your mind and your eyes back on, uh, back on Jesus.
Was God specifically speaking to you today? Maybe you grew up believing in the Lord, but something happened that you could not explain from your limited perspective. Then an argument came into your mind. Maybe God doesn't exist. That idea can be very appealing if you want to live for yourself and make up your own morals as you go. However, if you've been on that path for long, you should be realizing that a life devoid of God is not only empty, but it's also destructive. Others of you may have had your face stolen by a teacher, friend, or even an older person whom you love and respect. They taught you some arguments that seemed to make a lot of sense at the time, but again, the longer you live, the emptier and more disillusioned you've become. Should you believe in God merely because you want to do so? No, but doesn't God's creation call out to you informing you of his existence? If you are hearing the voice of your creator, what could be more fulfilling than to seek to know this God personally? Here's a promise from God to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29:13. Others of you may have a personal relationship with God through Christ, but you feel beaten down by the circumstances of life. Maybe a great personal tragedy like losing a loved one has crushed your spirit. Jesus' disciples were about to lose the privilege of walking with the Son of God himself. How can we calculate that loss? Yet remember our Lord's words of comfort as found in this sermon. You believe in God, believe also in me. Hang on to your faith, remember that Jesus has not forsaken you, and keep looking forward to the day when you will be with him in heaven. As always, if you have a spiritual need and would like to interact with someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. We live stream many of our services and you can access them on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on that platform. We also have a podcast that contains the recordings for this entire series. The best way for you to access that resource is to follow the Radio Bolt icon we have pinned near the top of our Facebook page. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube, so if you don't have Facebook and you would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube and you'll find our page there. We hope you'll also like and subscribe. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. His grace has blended all, tis mine but to believe, and recognize his work of love and Christ Free.